dream killers. If your dream makes their life pale in comparison, or it's going to upend the power structure, if it has the potential to make you the dominant force, they will try to kill that dream. Welcome to Someone Like You, a podcast that highlights the experiences of women, immigrants, and people of color who are building empires, creating amazing things, and changing the world. Here, we celebrate underrepresented stories and unheard voices. Sylvia V. Reed is an ordained minister and the most elegant person I've ever met. After a lifetime of working in the church, she launched A Seat at Sylvia's Table, a lifestyle coaching nonprofit that helps women move from merely existing to truly living. In this episode, we talk about dream killers, embracing your many identities, prioritizing yourself, especially as an African-American woman, and what it means to live elegantly. You are one of the most elegant people I have ever met. <laughs> what does elegance mean to you? Elegance to me means showing up in the world intentionally in the manner that speaks to and exudes grace. Mm. Elegance is going through life in a manner that is not dictated by the external circumstances, but moored by your internal convictions and construct. Wow. And where did that definition, that sense of grace, where did that come from for you? I would have to say it came from my mom environmentally and my belief in God relationally. Mm. So um, as a Christian, we are steeped in the concept of we exist, we are gifted, we are blessed, we prosper because of God's grace or niceness towards us. Mm -hmm. So that is a core belief of mine that anything I have, it's not just because I've put in the work or or I've studied or gone to school, but God was in a very, very good mood when he looked my direction. <laughs> um, Regina, Regina King said it best when she was accepting her Oscar. She said her mother taught her that God has always leaned in her direction. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's just an inherency in my life. But how is that demonstrated? It was demonstrated by my mother. My mother was the wife of a pastor and, and, and a bishop, 
So she, even though she was very shy, very soft-spoken, she was thrust into this public persona that she had to grow into. But she was the epitome of being ladylike. She was very soft-spoken, very feminine. And no matter what home we lived in, no matter whether it was a small church or a large church, she always created this world that was very warm and calm and inviting and full of life. And I saw her handle the challenges of being married to a public figure. I saw her handle the challenges of of having no private life because there were times we lived in what's called the parsonage, which is the housing is actually on the grounds of the church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have people traipsing in all hours of the day and night. but she just found a center that kept her grounded, that kept her calm. I saw her learn how to smile through horrific circumstances. And this is not to suggest that she was a doormat, that she did not have a voice, that she did not have convictions or her own sense of self. But she just reached a point and passed on to her two daughters that the external circumstances do not determine how you show up in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I learned from this lady um, of of refinement and elegance that um, almost like that, that ad that came out decades ago, never let them see you sweat. (laughs) <laughs> and so you just you just kind of take a moment, suck it up, and don't let the external take you off off your mooring. And so um, I grew up. She was a classically trained musician, so I grew up um, when she would do her housework, hearing classical music and opera and. And um, when she would get stressed, she would just go to her piano and play her piano. She um, just found ways to bring beauty and elegance and warmth into whatever situation she faced. So that's that's where um, those are those are the two main influences. Wow, that's amazing. You paint such a vivid picture. When you were at such a young age, did you have a sense of how that would apply to your life? Um, would you Did you plan to go into the church like your father? Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? So, yes. And, and because you've worked with me and you've experienced my creative side, mm-hmm. I... I am not one dimensional. I really believe in my heart that I can pursue simultaneously or sometimes one after the other different avenues of fulfillment. I've never just wanted to have a job. 
I always wanted something that would give me the glad glass or make my heart sing. So growing up as a pastor's daughter, because you you don't have a private life because you do see how people can be with your parents. It was there was a period in my life when I did not want to work for the church. Mm-hmm. So my working life started in retail because I was in love with fashion. <laughs> yes. Um, I had a great aunt who was the splitting image of Rosalind Russell in the movie Auntie Maine. And, you know, this this is the first woman I've seen with, you know, makeup, red nails, fabulous mm-hmm. jewelry, you know, just this amazing sense of style. So I started working in retail and I and I worked in retail fashion for about 13 years. And then I'm not quite sure um, how my father maneuvered it, but the next thing I knew, I was <laughs> teaching at our Christian school that we had founded. And I taught there for about 11 years. And then um, towards the end of that, probably around year nine, my father passed. And so I stayed in Christian education a couple of more years. And then I started working for Mega Ministries. Mm-hmm. And it was never a decision that I'm going to start working for ministries. It just kind of happened. So I kind of think that at some point, God and my dad had a conversation about the course of my life and they just didn't (laughs) tell me. (laughs) Um, So as, as, but when I was, when I was 12, I did feel that there was a call for me to be a minister. And I did share that with my father and we had many discussions about it, but over the succeeding years, my ability to administrate really came to the surface. So Mm -hmm. I was always working in the church, even when I was not working for the church, but I was working more in the areas of administration and event planning and coordinating and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So when you made this very big transition from working in the fashion industry to Christian education. What was that like? Did you, how did you um, find this creative outlet? Cause as you mentioned, you are a very creative person. That's interesting. I was working with, I was teaching junior high. So I had all these young ladies that I can mold and shape <laughs> and pour into. And so um, as a Christian school, you you do have to be creative in a sense because you have to find ways to make what kids would see as a whole bunch of rules and regulations fun. Mm-hmm. So we did, you know, so like we didn't celebrate traditional Halloween 
but we had something called Oktoberfest mm-hmm. where you still had all of the, a lot of the elements of Halloween. So we had a haunted house and kids could dress up and we had a big carnival. Um, we would do a Christmas program that was just, you know, off Broadway in this production value. We would do what was called school day when the entire school would come to the church and share in the worship experience. So there was there were plenty of outlets for my creativity. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, as our church was growing, there were more opportunities for me to put on events and coordinate productions. And so there really, believe it or not, is a lot more opportunity to be creative Mm -hmm. because you do have to think out of the box because you you have two audiences you're trying to serve. You have the very traditional, super conservative, Mm -hmm. old guard people. And then you have the people that you're trying to attract that that have a very narrow view of what church is. So you kind of have to go out the box a little bit and so they can see that, oh, wow, you can still have fun and be a Christian. Wow, never knew that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've, I've always been extremely blessed and fortunate to have a creative outlet. Sure. So one of these common threads I've seen through working with you and, and some of these stories is entertaining, creating these experiences, moments of gathering, whether that's through the church, uh, in your personal life, you've talked about your um, family holiday celebrations. What is so important to you about creating these experiences for people? It speaks to making that person feel that they mattered enough for you to put in thought and effort. One of the taglines that I used in in my nonprofit is moving from existing to living. And just how life is, especially in communities that are traditionally underserved or don't have a lot of discretionary income, they they get up, do what they need to do with their kids or their spouse, if they have them, maybe grab something to eat, go to work. They may be working in a job that's very fulfilling, or they may be working for a paycheck. Come home, do whatever they need to do, um, pay bills, deal with their kids, help with homework, spend time with their spouse go to bed and wake up in the morning and hit repeat Mm -hmm. and I think part of the origin of that is my love of old Hollywood and old movies and seeing you know these glamorous nightclub scenes and these glamorous um resorts and holidays and entertaining at home Mm -hmm. on such a large scale. And I just wanted to share my love 
of elegance with people, but I began to notice how overwhelmed people were sometimes by what I was so blessed just to experience growing up. And so it it was it, it was pretty much a <clears throat> excuse me standard in our home that at certain ages you learn certain things. Mm-hmm. And so at the age of of five, you started learning how to wash dishes. There was a, a kitchen s- stool and people of my generation will probably remember it, but there was this metal stool that um, was a step stool and a seat and all combined, but it was made out of this hardcore metal. And it's a wonder that we didn't lose fingers and nails <laughs> over the years. But I just remember my mom at age five, you know, sitting each of us on that stool and teaching us how to wash dishes. Of course, she gave us the dishes that were unbreakable. Mm-hmm. And then at age seven, you were taught how to lay a table and what this fork meant and what that fork meant and where this goes and how far from the edge. And it was only when I was older that I learned that she learned how to do that from her grandmother who raised her when her grandmother was working in the fine homes as a maid. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of the history of that, it made it more intentional and precious to me. Mm -hmm. And so I began on a very small scale, not really um, having a, a definitive plan for this to be such a huge part of my life, just putting on events and doing things, but they always had that um, over the top elegant feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I just began to really notice that people were just raving about it. And so in addition to my retail and teaching career, I started doing event planning and wedding planning and wedding coordination, party planning, just because I saw the sheer joy and appreciation it brought people. Um, You can live in this world and be surrounded by people and be the loneliest person on earth because we are not always intentional and the advent of technology has made life even more impersonal. Um, You can meet more people, but you don't really interface and interact with them on a level where you can really get to know one another. You, You, people can learn someone's political viewpoints, Um, social viewpoints, financial viewpoints, but never really get to know the person. Mm -hmm. And so I like to create experiences where the human element is brought back into the interaction. I am sensual by nature, meaning I I like sensory experiences. Mm -hmm. So texture, sight, fragrance, 
feel atmosphere is very important to me. So one of these events that you created was called A Seat at Sylvia's Table. Tell me about this inaugural event that then prompt a whole new business venture for you. What was this first experience like? Several years ago, I came across an article in Huffington Post um, that detailed an African-American female entrepreneur that had brought together other um, high-powered African-American female executives and entrepreneurs. And they gathered around her table at her home. And I can't even remember the person's name, but it was a seat at, at I think it was something like Ayana's table. And it was just a time of sisterhood and sharing. And I really liked that concept. So from that, I decided to do a version of it at our family home in 2016 or 17. It may have been the summer of 2017, but anyway. And I invited about 10 of my girlfriends just to come over and set a lovely table. And that evening was all about just pouring into their lives, into speaking to how wonderful they were and how special they were and what they meant to me and how they had been a blessing in my life and just giving them time um, to be appreciated. And it was so interesting because these were all extremely accomplished women, but each of them had gone through their own individual horrific um, challenging season. One had had was just coming out of a bout with cancer. Another was just coming out of a bout of depression and almost left her suicidal. Another one was dealing with the feelings of guilt and issues and loss after an abortion. Another one was dealing with a, an unexpected divorce after 30 years of marriage. And then the last, another one was dealing with a bout of blindness because of a brain tumor. Wow. And we had all, well, some of us knew each other, um, but I'd known all these women. And I knew that they were battling a challenge, but I just did not know the full extent to each of their challenges. And it was such a bonding, healing, invigorating moment. And each one of them said, you have to do this again. You have to do this again. Women need to experience this. Women need to feel this kind of intentional connectivity. Mm -hmm. And so in 2018, 2019, yeah, 2019, I decided to do it again and thought that I would get maybe 40 women to come. But as word began to get out, I ended up with over 100 women. It's amazing. So for those who can't 
see the pictures of what this event was like. Will you describe it? Because it was rich with this sensory experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, it was really interesting. One of the reasons that it grew to over a hundred women was as women were beginning to register and sign up. So many of them said prior to, and then said afterwards, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew I had to come because you were doing it. And I knew it was going to be amazing. (laughs) So it, I wanted to create a moment for what I have dubbed these women to be as sister queens coming together. In Prince's Diaries 2, there's a scene when the princess is holding a slumber party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all the princesses, princesses from the kingdoms around the world. And they come together and they just hang out. And I really wanted it to feel like all of these queens from all these different kingdoms are just coming together just to hang out. But because they're queens, there is a certain level of accoutrement that must be engaged. And so the night began with, um, it was held at at a local hotel, and the night began with you're being greeted by a young man welcoming you to a seat at Sylvia's table. And then you were then escorted to the reception area. And in the reception area, um, there were hors d'oeuvres. There were other young men suited and booted to direct you to where you can get some refreshments. There were high-end vendors there. Um, for your shopping pleasure. Um, I had a strolling guitarist that was serenading the ladies while they were waiting to come in. And you were able to mingle and see other ladies. The color scheme for the evening was rose gold. So from the registration table to the guest book, to the decor, everything was in rose gold. And then at the appropriate time, the doors were open for the big reveal. And you walked into the grand ballroom where I was at the door greeting my sister queens. And there was one huge square table for a hundred, I want to say 106 to 108 women all around one table. White linen, crystal, china, and all the accents were rose gold. And so you found your place by finding, um, I had had handmade decor mugs made with the initial of every lady that had registered with a floral spray coming out of it. So you found your place by finding a mug, which was in white and rose gold with the initial of your first name on it. And so that created mingling opportunities. It helped um, 
it was a really great icebreaker because you could hear ladies saying, does anybody know where an L is? I'm looking for an L. And they'd be like, well, there's an L over here. And that way it kind of got you out of your comfort zone because if you came with someone, you may not have sat with someone. So mm-hmm. you got a chance to meet another sister queen. And then the place setting was a crystal charger with rose gold beading. There was a rose gold journal, a rose gold Swarovski pen, the mug with your initial on it at the table. The napkin rings were rose gold. And so the table, a huge open hollow square with white linen and the um, runners were rose gold sequins. And then I had big oversized goblets and rose gold crystal with lights in it. And then two, I mean, four big florals with crystals. So the table was extremely luxurious and over the top elegance. And Mm -hmm. then I had lights running through the fabric on the table. So the table literally glowed. Mm-hmm. And you sit down and you're you're looking around at a hundred plus other women at one huge table. And all of the decor accents in the room were rose gold sequins or um crystals. And then I had swag bags that were custom made in the same rose gold with my SBR ministry logo on it. Um, then I had two dessert displays. They were actually, um, shelving displays about seven feet tall that I had the individual desserts placed on. And there was another table with the sparkling cider, which I got a rosé sparkling cider. So the room was, was dressed for the evening and of course the strolling guitarist came in the room as well and serenaded the ladies as um they entered and then you had a a glitter a rose gold glitter card at each place setting and you were asked to write a love note to the sister queen to your left and the start of the evening commenced with different ladies reading their love note to their sister queen and it was phenomenal and I mean women were brought to tears and so that was the vibe of the evening Mm -hmm. and then we went through a time of affirmation of sharing spoken words speaking into their lives musical entertainment and then the evening ended with every lady receiving a tiara from the same gentleman because you can't be a queen without a tiara. So they all got their tiaras and their scepters were long stemmed pink roses. So amazing. (laughs) Every single detail was thoughtful, glamorous. It's so amazing. So... After that event, what prompted this decision to make this a thing? 
was there a specific moment that said, I need to continue to do this, this is my calling, or was it this gradual realization? I want to say it it really was a gradual realization, but it was also born out of the, I would, I would say it was three things. It was a gradual realization. It was the continued, excuse me, um, inquiries and impromptu counseling sessions and sharing with women. And it was finally the downtime I had because we were working remotely because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I began to see um, in social media, people were getting their side hustles on, <laughs> which is which is fine, which is great, um, which which is actually good sense because of this pandemic and other factors, economic certainty is no longer a thing. <laughs> um, you know, you you kind of need to have some backup quarters someplace, but. I was becoming more and more disturbed by the quality of what I saw being presented on social media. Mm -hmm. And there, I, I didn't see a lot of elegance out there. And a lot of times, and I'm probably going to date myself, but a lot of times people confuse keeping it real with just being ratchet, which is, <laughs> which is, you know, just out there wilding out. <laughs> and it seems as though people get rewarded for that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to speak to the woman that was looking for answers, looking for ways to move forward in life, looking for solutions, looking for methodology to deal with the stresses of being a woman, um, some of the unique stresses of being an African-American woman in, in today's society, mm -hmm. but doing it in a way that was comfortable, that was real, but that was elegant and giving women a safe place to work through some, some things, giving women examples of how to move from existing to living, to, to let them know, not only do you have a voice, here's where you look for your voice, and once you find it, here's how you use it. And so it was, it was sort of, you know, that whole three pronged concept. So I would definitely say it, it evolved and it really um, crystallized when I was recommended to you <laughs> for branding and marketing, because I was, re I was really just looking for a new logo <laughs> and a way to just make my presentation a bit more 
professional mm-hmm. because I was, you know, I was seeing upside down logos, sideways, you know, Facebook lives. And I just wanted my social presence to be commiserate with the level of excellence I'm known for with my events. Mm-hmm. So all of that culminated this summer with the launch <laughs> of your first virtual A Seat at Sylvia's Table event and the launch of your website and community coaching programs. So congratulations, first of all. Well, thank you. <laughs> so your event this summer in August was focused on self-care and you alluded to this. Why is self-care so important for women and especially for African-American women? As I, as I stated in, in a video I did, somewhere, somewhere, somehow, an election was held where it was determined that women were going to be the caretakers of the world. And the challenge, the challenges that go along with that are often discussed, but very rarely do we bring up the first response to that challenge, which is to find a way to care for yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't care for yourself, then after a point, you won't be able to care for anyone else. So then you will be saddled with the additional guilt of not being able to perform at the level you feel you need to. As African-American women, the, the generations of social struggle, of income, health, and food disparities, the pressures that accompany the relationships with our African-American men because of systemic racism and economic disadvantage of characterizations and stereotypes and prejudices and, and so many other things in addition to so often for those reasons, being a single mom or the head of a household or, you know, being single with no kids, but it's only your paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so there can, there can be a lot of stress that African-American women deal with that may not necessarily be the plight of our white sisters. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that African-American women have to think about that a white woman may not have to think about. Mm -hmm. And so um, how do you carry that load and then find not just the resources, but the time to care for yourself? And so it crystallized for me in the years from, well, 
after my dad passed, I was the sibling in the family home with my mom. But I would say probably the last six years of her life, I really took on the load of caring for her, mm-hmm. which was an honor. It, it, it was something that I was honored and pleased to do, but it was exhausting. And so when I came out of caring for her, I went right into caring for my brother who passed seven months after she did, that I was finally able to kind of go, whoa, all right. That was a lot. I learned a lot. Therefore, I have a lot to share. Because during my mom's final time of transition, I was working full-time for a mega ministry, which meant my average work week was anywhere between 65 and 70 hours a week. Mm -hmm. I was finishing up a degree. So I was in school. Mm -hmm. I was the the primary caretaker of my mom. And then I moved my brother back home because he was suffering from a terminal illness. And I was managing all things pertaining to the family. Um, Our home was a huge, beautiful home, but huge home. built in the 1930s. So I would say, no, I do have an 80 plus year old kid that I got to take care of because (laughs) every week it was something else. And because of the type of home it was, you couldn't just go down to Home Depot and get the part and come back and Mm -hmm. fix it. Mm -hmm. And so there there was a lot of pressure on me as well as the ministerial part of my life because I I work for a church, but I also minister. Mm -hmm. So there were also, after my quote unquote work was done, I might be called to speak someplace or to moderate an event or to do something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I just remember when I had a moment to kind of step to stop and look back, I was just like, oh my word, how in the world did I survive that season? (laughs) So that's when I became very intentional about speaking of self-care. What were some of the things that you found to kind of pour into yourself or fill your own cup when you were giving so much to other people? I had to hold on to pieces of the vision of how I like to live my life. Mm -hmm. So even though I was not at a healthy weight and my eating was horrible just because of circumstances, I made sure I still dressed the way I like to dress. I still did my hair the way I like my hair to be done. I still, you know, got up every day, 
fully dressed, makeup, hair, jewelry, nails, the whole bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I had lost that, then I felt I would have lost everything. And mm-hmm. and um, we have a saying in the African-American community, I don't look like what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And so that was one thing I did. What I could keep the way I liked, I kept it that. So I I kept the space I occupied in our family home as close to how I like it as possible. Um, there would be some nights that instead of going straight home, because after a while, we, we did get another caretaker that helped. So there would be some nights that instead of going straight home, I would go to one of my um, favorite restaurants and have dinner, mm-hmm. you know, even if it was just, you know, an hour and a half, but I would go and let someone wait on me. I would um, keep a book, a favorite book of mine that that has such a story of inspiration in that book. I would keep it in my car. And there would be times I would just take 30 minutes and go to my car and just read a couple of chapters just to say, stay tethered to mm-hmm. my dream. And then I was extraordinarily blessed to have a sisterhood in my life that I could talk to, I could cry with. They would pray with me. They would let me fuss and tantrum and rage they would come and give me a break and um that and of course the core of my being a believer and having a prayer life um and and you know really talking out loud to God and just saying God you you have to help me today because I I can't do this another day mm-hmm. and giving myself permission to be to be human but when you are in the throes of crisis or you're in the midst of a situation where you can't do all the normal things you can do um you have to find something that you can hold on to to keep you connected to where you really believe you're going and where you really believe you're going to live. Speaking of that vision that you have for yourself, is that something you ever lost sight of? And if there are women out there who have lost sight of that, do you have any guidance on how they can find that sense of themselves again? Yes. And it it can be easy to lose sight of it when life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. And so you, you find people talking you out of your mindset. Mm-hmm. You find people judging and commenting and interpreting for you what you should be doing. 
in my case, because I love elegance and glamour and luxury and refinement, there, there have been times when I have been painted as being frivolous or having no substance that, oh, if it's shiny, that's all she, she's, she cares about. Or, well, she's just the hostess with the most, but she just loves to throw parties. Mm-hmm. And so when, when that narrative began to move from being an observation to being said jokingly, to being a definition Mm -hmm. of who I was. And if, if if I countered that, they would just become more entrenched. Like, oh, no, 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 no. What you really are, what you really like. When, when that began to happen, I was like, okay, hold on, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I learned is not to share every dream with everyone. Yeah. Because sometimes, and, and I prefer to believe that, that sometimes it's born out of concern for you people can't see how that can happen for you or they think it's going to take too much out of you. Sometimes um, our pastor, Bishop Lake, refers to dream killers that if your dream makes their life pale in comparison or it's going to upend the power structure, if it has the potential to make you the dominant force, they will try to kill that dream. So certain things I don't discuss with anyone, excuse me, I just do them. The other thing is to watch our relationships so we don't get lost in the relationship. And we find ourselves expending energy on maintaining the relationship or keeping that person when that energy should be used for building our dream. Wow. And then you go back to the beginning. There, there's a scripture in the Bible that references going back to your first love, that you will find yourself in certain seasons of life, excuse me, where you almost don't recognize yourself. And it is at that point that you stop and you go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Who, Who did I always say I wanted to be? What did I always want to do? What were my passions? What made me smile? What made my heart sing? And then you, you, you take that journey and you find something from that season that you can do right now. And it's going to take your giving yourself permission to make yourself a priority. Mm. 
Wow. <laughs> and and as women on mass, this this particular dynamic really crosses cultural cultural and social and color lines and age lines. Even today, as women, we fight for the right to make ourselves a priority. If you look at all of what we as women en masse are fighting for, if you peel away all the layers, it goes back to, do we have a right to make ourselves a priority? Wow. Absolutely. It's such a challenge constantly mm -hmm. for women. That's yeah, so powerful. So one of the things you've touched on in a few different ways is these multiple identities you have. And I think that's something um, women often struggle with too, is being put in a box as one dimensional or people wanting to you to serve one role and not others. Is that something you consciously navigate or does it be come naturally to you to just be um, versatile and, and have all of these different parts to you? It's both. It's, 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 it's both. Um, it's, it's interesting that you would ask, ask that because it, it typically happens naturally when someone is trying to put me in a box. Mm. <laughs> Makes sense. So the, the, the ministry is inherently, um, I want to say this correctly so they don't snatch my papers. <laughs> the ministry, religion inherently is male dominated. Uh -huh. Okay. And so for me, even though I was a daddy's girl and my father was an alpha male and I called him a benevolent chauvinist, he did not limit me because I was a girl. Mm. And so just the other day on a Facebook Live, I, I, I said, that my father raised me like a son, but treated me like a princess. Mm. And so working in ministry, which can be male dominated, there are certain roles that certain men are more comfortable with my occupying than others. Uh -huh. And so there and this is some, not all, because our, 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 our pastor is quite evolved. But there are some men I have found that are very comfortable with my putting on an event. But are not as comfortable when I'm the one tapped to preach a sermon. Hmm. So when that challenge kind of comes up in a meeting because I sit on the executive committee 
<laughs> and so a lot of my role on that committee is toward administration and event planning and coordination and oversight. If, if I get challenged from a theological standpoint, then it's, it's an automatic switch, almost like a generator that kicks in when the power goes <laughs> off. And then instantly the theological part of me is downloaded and I go from being Sylvia to Reverend Sylvia Reed. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it's, and sometimes it, okay, this is going to sound so crazy, but sometimes it's almost like an out-of-body experience. It happens so quickly and seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Now, when it happens intentionally, it's because I'm looking at a situation, I'm looking at an assignment, I'm looking at a task, and then I have to decipher, okay, which Sylvia needs to, to tackle this? Does it need to be the uber soft, gracious, accommodating, sweet Sylvia? Does it need to be the fun-loving, listing out the box, Yes, more glitter, more glitter, more glitter, Sylvia. (laughs) Or does it need to be, I'm taking no prisoners. This is how we're doing it. And there's not going to be any discussion, Sylvia. And those are kind of more intentional. And I'm sure your listeners are thinking by now, this girl is psychotic and she got (laughs) no way. I was thinking that is so badass. You know, but I I think we have given multiple personalities a bad name because to to be fully actualized, to be complete, to feel accomplished, you you have to give yourself permission to tap into all of these selves that God put in you to make you this amazing human being. Our dear brother Chadwick that just left us, and I'm paraphrasing, said he wanted to leave here having given every ounce of talent God put in him. Yeah. So if you if 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 you're a woman and you're you're an executive and you work in a law office and it's legal, legal, legal all day long. But then something about circus acrobats just appeals to you, which on paper are diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm. Tap into that circus part of you because there's something that your soul is craving um, that will help to feed your life. It's, it's like when we're craving certain foods, there's a theory that says that's because there's a nutrient in that food that your body needs. Mm-hmm. And your body is saying, hey, 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 I, 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 I need this. It's the same thing inherently um, in our core. There are certain stimuli that we need to live our lives to the fullest and we can't starve that part 
because because in essence, what's going to happen is the part that we have nurtured and focused on is going to take over and that other part is going to be deprived and you're going to find an imbalance that is going to bleed out one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so, so important. I love the way that you describe that. Um, I think that's powerful guidance for any person out there, but especially for women. So we're going to finish up with a little lightning round. Okay. And so um, I have just a few questions and I just want you to give me off the cuff the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. What scares you? Inconsistency. Mm. What are you most proud of? Hmm. My versatility. Yes. When are you at your best? <laughs> when I'm in control. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let, let me let me reframe that. I'm at my best when I feel secure. How do you define success? <sighs> mm. Wow, how do I define, now you know my OCD control freak stuff is kicking in. Um, when I can exhale. Ooh, I love that. That's great. And how do you want to be remembered? As kind. I want to be remembered as kind. When my mom passed and I posted it on, on social media, almost everyone that said something said she was so kind. Mm -hmm. She was so sweet. She was always so nice to me. I want to be remembered as a kind soul. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for more to come or visit LizMarieStrategy.com for more resources, stories, and insights for creatives and entrepreneurs.